You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host... Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I am your host, Stuart Deloney. Thank you so much for joining us for this next hour. Uh, Whether you are a longtime listener or a first-time one, just wanted to remind you guys that you can catch this episode and past episodes on our website, www.snarkyfaith.com. And also, if you hit subscribe while you're on our website. You'll be added to our mailing list where we do exclusive shows where you, the fan, can join in. And that only happens if you subscribe. We've got an action-packed show today that includes part one of an interview with Christian author and activist Matthew Sleeth. It's a great talk. I think you'll enjoy it. But before we get to that, we've got some house cleaning to do around here, right? You know this. We've got what's good, what's bad. So let's hop right in and get going. What's Good, What's Bad chronicles the best and worst of things out there from this past week, out there in the realm of internet landtopia. We will bring you the best and worst of everything that we can find in the Snarkiverse. So let's get started. So let's begin with some good. Out there in the land of weirdness, Portland, Oregon. Have you heard about how anarchists are taking over? Now, when you think of anarchism, You don't think of public works, do you? But that's exactly what's happening in Portland. A local group of anarchists has taken to the streets to help local communities by, wait for it, fixing potholes themselves. The group is called the Portland Anarchist Road Care, or PARC. Yes, that's right. Anarchists are taking to the streets in Portland and fixing potholes, which sounds like a great thing. And... I would go ahead and say, yes, it is a great thing, but it's not a great thing if you're officials from the city of Portland who claims that fixing potholes should be left to the professionals. To which Park responded saying that anarchy is about claiming communal ownership over our spaces, be they the public work, educational or otherwise. Our work puts that ideology into practice. These are our roads, and we use them every day, and we will fix them together. You have to love what they're doing here. You have to love the fact that they are turning this restlessness, this anarchism, this desire for advocacy into actual, tangible change. And at the same time, you know the government's response, meh, we don't like that. But all I will tell you guys in park out there in Portland, Oregon, right on, my friends. Keep up the good work. Next, there's this beautiful video floating around the internet that has a rabbi, a priest, and an atheist all sitting down together and smoking pot. Now, this isn't a statement about whether marijuana should be legal or illegal. That has nothing to do with the story. I just love the ecumenical tone that goes through these three guys as they sit down together. It's something that's absolutely beautiful, 
And there is, I mean, there's so much truth in a lot of the interchange between these three very different individuals as they sit down together and find a commonality. I'll give you a snippet of it here, but you can find the whole video on our website, www.snarkyfaith.com, under What's Good, What's Bad. Maybe this will work for all of us. Just think of God as all things true, knowing that we don't know all things. Yeah, that's good. I know that maybe for you, the word God doesn't have that much meaning, but I, it has meaning for me. So if you can accept the blessing from God. Sure, sure, yeah. God bless you and keep you. And may God always surround you and bless you with peace. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. You know, Jim, when you said the word shalom, you gave me goosebumps. Okay. It's a, it's a powerful word. That must be shalom yeah. is a good word. I really I, enjoyed being with you. Yeah, I like you guys. Are really cool. I like this guy. I like this Carlos? guy too. I like you. Maybe you know. Maybe it's the beginning of a friendship, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm your friend. I'm sure. everybody's friend. Yeah. I think it's an absolute beautiful thing to get diverse folks around a common table to be able to have a conversation where they're able just to see the humanity in each other. When they look at each other, they don't see ideologies or belief systems or all this other stuff. They're just able to see that we're simply just humans trying to make our way in this world. It's beautiful. You should check it out. Next. So you knew this had to come. What's good, what's bad can't just be about sunshine and rainbows. Because we had the good, now it's time to swallow the bitter pill of what's bad. And what's bad? Strictly came out of Washington this last week. That's right. It came with Trump's new budget proposal for our country, which is nothing that you shouldn't expect, but it's still shocking to see this. When you begin to see the fact that we increased our military spending $54 billion. Now, as most of you know, we didn't simply just increase something without taking something away. Yep, because more military means we've got to take budget cuts from things like the National Endowment of the Arts, PBS, Meals on Wheels, and the friggin' EPA. Yes, the list goes on and on of those government institutions that are under the chopping block if this passes. And don't you worry. It's not just about increasing military spending. We're also going to build a wall. The wall that's been promised. The wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for. Yes, the wall that really nobody wants but Trump is going to make happen because he loves putting his names on things. So thank you, Religious Right, for electing this guy. Thank you for putting our priorities back in check because I'm not really sure what you were voting for, but what we got was a huge increase on the military and a huge increase to be able to pay for this border wall, both of which I would argue with anyone, any time of the day, has nothing to do with your religious right principles whatsoever. And you want some dollars and cents to back that? Yes, on <laughs> 
This is insane. On ProPublica.org, they had posted this saying one year of spending on a border wall is equal to the federal funding for the Corporation of Public Broadcasting plus the $231 million that's given to the country's libraries and museums plus the $366 million that goes to legally help for the poor. You heard me right. That's what's happening. And I understand the way budgets work. I get it. I understand the process. To have a good fiscal budget, if you want to add things, you have to cut things. It's just very simple in that. And I get it. But what I don't get is gutting the heart of social services in our country in order to build up a military which is already bigger than most of the militaries combined on the planet Earth. So, yeah, we already have the biggest military. I mean, Trump, are you compensating for something by getting us a bigger one? And then secondly, building the wall that nobody wants. I'm not going to say nobody because, yes, there are people out there that really want this idea to work. They want this to happen. They, for whatever reason, are in love with this. So farewell after school programs. Farewell Meals on Wheels. Farewell to us being a country that actually gives a rip about those that are hurting and on the margins and living in poverty. It was good while it lasted. And the explanation for all of this boils down to Mick Mulavey, who is Trump's budget director. And as he had carefully evaluated how we've been spending our money in the past as a country, he came to find out that programs like Meals on Wheels, we we'd mentioned before, programs like the after-school program, which helps single parents or working parents everywhere, those programs, we haven't seen enough gains from them. We haven't seen enough tangible ROI on our quote-unquote investments over the past while. Now, I wish when we talk about like investments, when we talk about ROI on these kind of things, I wish you would actually go and talk to the families that will be affected with this when it goes away. I mean, that's the sad thing. Because if you want to talk about a return on investment, how is the wall going to fix anything? How is the fact that we already have a huge military and needing to add to that going to fix any thing? Because really, the fact that we've been a military power over the last, what, 50, 60 years, the fact that we have the muscle to flex around the world, I don't know by and large that we have actually made the world a better place with our military. Have we gotten into situations that are basically clustered for our country and for the people that we go into because we're offering, quote-unquote, help to them? So, geez, let's think about Vietnam. Let's think about Iraq, Iraq 2.0, Afghanistan, all of these, and the list goes on and on. How much money that we are actually spending, and why are we doing it? What are we accomplishing? Who are we honestly helping Besides, like, government, our own government and our own businesses and whatever else selfish 
needs that you can see that happened through our military conquest that continues to move forward. Have we made the world a safer place? If you read the newspapers, not necessarily. Actually, not so much at all. So has our military conquest really made things better in the past 50 years? I would probably say no. Personally, I would say absolutely no. And the fact that we need to continue to pour more money into this makes no sense at all. We're pouring more money into things that are not helping American citizens on a daily basis. They're not. Like, when is the last time that you heard somebody say back to you, oh my gosh, I may be out of work, but I am so glad we have one of the largest militaries in the world. Now, even though I can't feed my kids, even though I can't pay my bills, you know what would make me feel better right now? To realize our military would just be bigger. Like, that helps me so much as an American citizen. I feel so much better that uh, whatever little tax dollars I'm paying on a regular basis are going to help absolutely effing nothing. This is a travesty. This is insanity. And we are going down a road that is going to lead us to a place that we really don't want to leave for our children. And it boils simply down to that. Does government spending help the people that pay taxes in our country? Or does it go to help corporations and other entities that are are not, frankly, the folks that are struggling day to day. Now, I never agreed with Trump. I would have never voted for Trump. But honestly, what he's doing, he's leaving all of those folks behind that voted for him. Out of all those Trump rallies, out of all those places that he went, to be able to get support for that, for his cause, for his presidency, he's leaving all of these people out in the cold. And it shouldn't surprise us because it's pretty much exactly how he ran his business. Prop up the man, screw everybody else involved. That's really his mode of operation. It's all about narcissism and me, me, me. And that's frankly not the American way, or it's at least not the America I want to live in. And so on that note, I want to pivot slightly pivot slightly to figuring out how, in a weird, twisted, tangential way, that this could actually be good for the churches in America. So all of that leads me to want to talk about how welfare began in the United States. Now, a lot of this article I'm going to be going over comes from the Constitutional Rights Foundation, or if you want to find this online, it's crf-usa.org. And for us to really understand where we're at, and for me to hopefully twist this somehow into (laughs) a situation where we see some silver lining for those out there that say that they follow after Jesus. So before I get to the silver lining Let's actually go through how all this started out, or basically what you could call it was kind of the down and dirty history of social services, welfare, government assistance. Yeah, basically that. And take all of that and mix it in with the fact that 
the church in America should have a role to play in fixing all of this. But most likely, probably will cop out and do nothing but business as usual. So let's hop into the history. Okay, so you have the United States back in the 1920s. Before the Great Depression hits, it was basically local and state governments, as well as private charities and churches that served the needs of the needy families that needed food, clothing, shelter. So it was local and state governments, it was charities, and it was the churches that shared the burden of being able to help those folks that were needy, that were hurting, that were being marginalized in their own communities. Okay? So this is where we were before the Great Depression happens. So October 29, 1929, the stock market crashes, and it changes everything, which leads into the Great Depression. Now, at the beginning of the Great Depression, there were about 18 million elderly, disabled, and single mothers with children that already lived below the poverty level. By 1933, there was an additional 13 million Americans that had been thrown out of work. And suddenly, the state and local governments, the charities, the churches, can no longer keep up with giving even the minimal amount of assistance to all of these people. Because if you think about it, if these folks aren't working, one, they're not paying taxes, and two, they're not going to give to charities because they have nothing to give. Food riots begin to break out, shanty towns and homelessness become rampant across the country. By the spring of 1933, 20% of the nation's school children showed evidence of poor nutrition, housing, and medical care. School budgets could cut, even fact, some schools even just outright close. And then what you begin to see is they estimate around 200,000 boys at this time leave home to wander the streets and beg because of the poor economic conditions in their own households. Enter Roosevelt's New Deal, which was there to provide work relief for millions of Americans. Now, that helped out some, but we still had the problem of what they would call the unemployables, which are the widows, the poor children, the elderly, the poor, and the disabled. Then on January the 4th, 1935, Roosevelt, in a State of the Union address before Congress, declares this, quote, the time has come for action by the national government to provide security against the major hazards and uncertainties of life. He goes on to establish federal unemployment and old age insurance programs. He also calls for guaranteed benefits for poor single mothers and their children, along with other dependent persons. Thus begins the government's involvement in social services, welfare, and general relief to the American population. So all that to be said laid the groundwork for where we are at today. Now, my point of this little diatribe, this rant, this tangent that I'm going on here has actually nothing to do with criticizing the government for helping out those that are in need. Actually, my criticism is going to flip back on to the churches and what the churches should do next if something like this new Trump budget passes because 
Think about this. And I'm taking a pause right now because we're going to hop back into history. We're going to go through the history of really budgets and how the church functions in America. So we are moving ourselves to a place where a lot of us don't like Trump's America. A lot of us don't like how this is unfolding right now. But what I want to speak directly to, to the pastors, to the churches, to the Christians in America, and tell you, as much as you want to lose heart right now, you shouldn't. Now, that doesn't mean we can't stand, that we can't push back against our orange POTUS. No, we should continue to do that. But I think times like these should make us refocus why the church is here, why the church exists, and what is the purpose of the church. Because as we saw pre-Great Depression, churches and different charities shouldered the brunt, shouldered the burden of a lot of the social work that happened in our country. Now, the Great Depression happens, and they kind of lose it. They kind of lose that ethic. Now, I'm not trying to tell you, because a lot of you will be listening to this and saying, oh, no, no, my church feeds the poor like once a month. My church does this. No, no, no. I'm not trying to say that we don't do those things. What I'm trying to say here is that we don't commit enough to those things. Because if this budget passes and all hell breaks loose, the folks that should be rising to stand in the gap for those that are marginalized and those that are hurting should be, should be the people that go to church every Sunday in America. Now, I lay this out as what my hope for this should be. But it's hard for me to bury my cynicism um, after working years in the institutional church. I know the way they function. I know the way they think. And I know the way they operate. And I have a hope for how they should change. I have a hope for what they should aspire to be. But my cynical side says, nothing will really change. But to understand really where the church was back there, pre-1930s, what their budgets looked like, what their operating systems looked like within the church, how the churches spent their money, We're going to have to go into a bit of a history lesson because for most of you out there that have either, because let's just be frank, I, I, (laughs) to be honest, I'm assuming that most of my listeners out there aren't the folks that are just the happy Christians that go to church every Sunday. Um, For you to gravitate towards this show called Snarky Faith, you're going to have a bit of a cynical, snarky edge to what your faith looks like. Now, this is no knock at God the Creator. This is no knock at Jesus, nor his teachings. This is a knock about how the church has developed over the past hundred years in America. And this is my cynicism that I'm laying out much like wet clothes on the laundry line, hoping for it to dry, and actually, in a certain sense, hoping that my cynicism is wrong. So for me to get to that point, Let's talk about how churches functioned before 1930s and the Great Depression. 
And to frame that conversation, I'm going to pull some quotes from two different articles. One of them was Four Ways the Modern Church Looks Nothing Like the Early Church by Preston Sprinkle, who wrote for Relevant Magazine. And he said this, Many churches today spend most of their revenue on salaries, building mortgages, and other material supplements to ministry. Now, if you look at the church budget, you'll probably find one or two percent of the church funds allocated towards benevolence, which would be helping the poor and people in need. Maybe another five percent or ten percent at best is given to needs outside the church that on some level help the poor. Such distribution of funds runs counter opposite to how the early church spent its money. The New Testament talks about, it actually talks a lot about giving money, but rarely, if ever, talks about giving towards salaries, and it never mentions giving money towards a building. And what Mr. Sprinkle is getting at in this article is simply this. The churches today are set up and run more like corporations than movements that are fueled by charity, by love, by grace, and by the Spirit of God. We've lost that. We have lost that in the American church. We no longer care about the marginalized or those that are less than in our towns and communities. Now, I know a lot of folks may push back on that statement, but if you honestly look at most church budgets on an annual basis, much like Preston Sprinkle says in that article, look at how much is spent on helping those outside the walls of your building. And when you begin to look at that and you begin to prioritize the teachings and the calls of Jesus, what you'll begin to see is that we're running an industry and we're no longer doing the work of God. You see, the funny thing is, when you look at anything from a corporation to a church to a country, how you spend your money speaks about your values and your priorities and what you actually care about. So let's hop into really just the history of giving and budgets in the church. And to help frame this part of the talk, I'm pulling information from Luther Seminary. You can find them on luthersem.edu. And they have an article called, Have We Always Done It This Way? It's by Adam Copeland. And it's quite excellent. It really takes the history of America and talks about how the churches have acquired money and how the churches have spent money over the years. And this fascinating journey through history starts in the pre-1800s where, which for those of you out there that are all pro the separation between church and state, we actually have a lot of the churches being funded by simply taxes. And so that begins to change. And we begin to see the churches having to adjust and to adapt to simply put, how do we make money so we can keep doing what we're doing? Which is, there is nothing wrong with that. There is absolutely nothing wrong with figuring out how you can continue to sustain what you're doing as an organization. You see churches in the 1800s finding ways to raise funds by allowing families to essentially pay for their seat in a pew on an annual basis. So those that give more 
get to sit near, and I love this part of it, they get to sit closer to the heaters in the church, um, and those that are free are in the back and in the balcony. So I'm not even going to comment on church and hierarchy and how money can influence that. That's a whole nother talk for a whole nother show. Because even though the concept of tithing or giving a portion of your income was not foreign to the church, it didn't start to get really pushed hard until the late 1800s because the church had to fund its day-to-day operations and its overall mission. So in American history, this is around the time where the idea of tithing becomes a spiritual discipline. And then skip into the early 1900s, which is what I found hilarious in this article, this new concept, this new revolutionary concept for the churches came about. It was called the tithing envelope. And as time goes on, uh, they begin to break it into the double envelope where you can give to your local church and then you can give to other stuff in the second half of this divided envelope. Yay, pre-versions of Office Max and Staples. This is back when we really cared that much about envelopes, and envelopes mattered all in a church. And so we begin to see that the ways pastors talked about giving, the ways pastors began to kind of coach what it meant to be a Christian and spirituality and giving, all began to be wrapped into one. And then we get to where I started this whole thing out. The people were giving to the church so they could help those in need, so they could help provide social services that were tangible tastes of the kingdom of God in their communities. If somebody was hungry, the church could offer them food. If somebody needed shelter, the church could offer that. And even though I know I've been snarky about the whole, like, movement in the churches towards tithing over the history of American culture, we will see that there was a good that was happening. There was good that was happening where the church was primarily the ones that were helping local communities. And so then we enter this period of the Great Depression, and like we've talked about before, all of that changes. And when we get out of the Depression, do churches go back to doing what they did before? No, they don't. Because guess what? Budgets and priorities changed. Things change, and we don't often change back to the way they should be. In my estimation, yes. When you look at a church budget, I would say anywhere from 50 to 75% should be going towards helping those outside the walls of the church. Because if you don't do it that way, it becomes all about what's happening inside the church. It gets eaten up by buildings and salaries and fog machines and laser light shows and all of these things that don't matter squat to the mission of God. And when we don't matter to the mission of God, you have to ask yourselves, what are the churches doing in America today? The sad thing is, I would love to see a return to this. And the silver lining to all of this, if Trump gets his way, absolutely. I would love to see the churches return to their roots, to mattering deeply in the community. And I'm not talking about mattering on a level of preaching. I'm not talking in a matter of how big our campus is or how big we're growing or how many books our pastor can sell. I'm not talking about that. None of that matters. What matters is simply this. Are you giving people 
a taste of what God's kingdom should taste like? Are we giving people that? When people encounter us as Christians, are they able to say without a doubt in their minds, I encountered somebody that resembled Jesus. I encountered someone that gave to me sacrificially, that laid their life down for me, that invested deeply in me. That's my hope. Now, my snarky side would say that nothing will change. Business will move forward, and we will simply just point our finger at the government for not doing what we feel like it's supposed to do. Now, make no mistake, the government right now under our orange president is doing something that is horrible, something that has nothing to do with the roots, the historical roots of Christianity. But I would love to see in this time of oppression, I would love to see in this time where the church is getting pushed to the margins, for the church to flourish in the margins, because that is what it has done historically. Now, moving on from that, I was able to sit down with author and activist Dr. Matthew Sleeth, and I love the work that he's doing. Much of his heartbeat, much of his work centers around the idea that we need to recapture the ethic of Sabbath rest, and also that we need to return to our historical Christian roots of caring for creation which would be in opposition to our government gutting the EPA right now. So without further ado, let's hop into the interview with Matthew Sleeth. A uh, former emergency room physician, Dr. Matthew Sleeth, resigned from his position as chief of medical staff and director of the ER to teach, preach, and write about faith and the environment. He's spoken to over a 1,000 churches and schools throughout the country. Dr. Sleeth is a graduate of George Washington University School of Medicine and has two postdoctorate fellowships. He's the author of Serving God, Save the Planet. He also is part of the, uh, the Green Bible and wrote 24-6, a prescription for a healthier, happier life. Dr. Sleeth, thank you so much for being on the show today. Great to be with you and your listeners. Well, um, let me ask this. So first and foremost, like, how does an ER physician transition into an advocate for healthy rest and creation care? Can you tell us a little about your journey? Sure. I uh, was not a Christian until I was in my mid-40s. And uh, my wife and I and two children were living on the coast of Maine. And uh, I was an ER doctor, uh, director of the department and everything. And we went on vacation uh, in, the, in the winter time. Uh, it's a great time to get out of Maine in January and February. <laughs> so we went south uh, for the winter break and we were staying on an island in the Gulf of Mexico. And it was an island without any cars or street lights and that sort of thing. Our children had gone to sleep. And uh, my wife and I were sitting under the just beautiful stars. The wind was blowing off the Gulf of Mexico. The palm trees were rattling. Life was looking good. And my wife turned to me and said, what is the biggest problem in the world today? And I 
I took it seriously. And I, I said that the world is dying. I, at this time, I'm a doctor. I'm not, I'm not an environmental anything <laughs> other than I live on the planet with everyone else. And I just kind of went down this list. You know, there's no Elms on Elm Street. There aren't Chestnuts on Chestnut Street. There aren't Caribou and Caribou, Maine. There aren't Buffalo and Buffalo, New York. Uh, the Blue Pike, which is the most numerous fish that there ever was in the Great Lake, uh, had, had gone extinct when I was in high school, um, and I and these aren't these are minor species. These are major things that have gone missing on the planet. Uh, and I said, I don't think I don't think we can keep going like we are as a planet and uh, survive. And uh, she then said, What are you going to do about it? And I had no clue. Um, we came back and. In the course of the next year or so, that that question, you know, what are you going to do about it, really bothered me. And then a number of things went wrong in our life. Uh, my my wife's um, brother drowned in front of my children. I had a uh, patient stalk me, and then the the icing on the cake was uh, on a September day. I got. Um, as the whole country realized things that were going apart in, in Manhattan with the World Trade Centers, um, my next door neighbor called and said, can you help me get my son from school and tell him that his dad was in the first plane? Oh, gosh. And uh, the, 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 just that, that whole chain of events left me thinking that I was in a very, very dark place. Uh, my wife got depressed during that time, which pretty pretty understandable. Um, and uh, I went looking for reasons to keep going, frankly. And uh, I I read through every um, Eastern text so you could get sacred text. I read the Ramayana, I read the Bhagavad Gita, tried to slog through the Quran, et cetera, et cetera. And then I picked up a Bible. Uh, in a waiting room, and I'd never read it before, and started in the New Testament and met Christ. And I think, especially in contrast to all those other things I was reading, uh, Christ just jumped off the page and and grabbed me and has never let go, thankfully. <laughs> and I haven't let go of him either. I, I just hang on for dear life now. Um, and uh, there was a calling there um, to to not only believe but to follow him. That calling didn't come with a roadmap and it didn't come with a paycheck. Mm -hmm. But we really began to change our lifestyle, and uh, we became the poster family for downwardly mobile. Uh, we I quit my job. Uh, we moved and. And uh, in that process, I began to get to know what the Bible had to say about caring for God's creation. And, and that's, that's really how things happened, although it took a little while. Um, and what was really great was I came to the Bible fresh. I didn't, mm. I didn't have any preconceived ideas. Um, I, I just, verily, I just read it <laughs> uh, and wanted to see what Scripture had to say. 
and um, it's it's been a it's been a beautiful process ever since mm. of trying to figure out you know how does God want us to live in this very complicated world that we're in. How are we good stewards of that? How are we good stewards of the gospel, our time, et cetera? So this is like a side question in the midst of your story. How did folks within your sphere, within the medical sphere, respond to you making such a big change? You know, it's it's interesting because in the in the community that I was in, there were no other Christians. I remember wanting to find somebody to discuss what I was learning, what I was seeing. I you could I could get a hold of sermons on the radio. We were very fortunate that you could get moody uh, programs uh, where we were. But that was my only connection to other Christians. And I started asking around the medical staff. I knew everybody. And out of a couple hundred people, I couldn't find one that went to church. Uh, even not not that that means per se you're you're a Christian, but I couldn't find anybody, um, and so the reaction was not strongly positive. Mm-hmm. I think people thought this is a base. Maybe he's a really great doc, and we'll see him back real soon. <laughs> you know, this this too will pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I got a letter from somebody. I wished I'd kept it, and he said I always thought you were one of the most intelligent people on the staff. I can no longer be friends with you. Mm. Um, and and I think that was probably what a number of people were thinking, mm. um, w- that suddenly I had checked my brains at the door mm. uh, kind of thing. Wow. So as you begin to transition out of this career, out of this career path that you had set yourself on, that you devoted your life to, I begin to see two themes that kind of rise to the surface of your passion and of your work. And those are Sabbath rest and creation care. So let me ask you this. Why does Sabbath rest matter so much in the life of a Christian? Well, creation care and Sabbath are intimately connected. I'm, by the way, I'm a, I'm a believe the Bible guy. I don't think there's any mistakes in the Bible. Um, I I think that if something is in there, it's there for a purpose. If it's not in Scripture, it's not there for a purpose. And um, and so when I open the Bible and I turn to Genesis and I start reading about um, God creating the heavens and the earth, and as I go down these days in Genesis one. Uh, it, it's it's everything that's being made and formed is more complicated as you go along, if you will, and and more magnificent and requires um, a greater attention to detail if you happen to be charged with taking care of it, which we we humans are. Uh, and the last thing that God makes is the Sabbath. Mm. And so he crowns creation, if you will, the first six days with with something that's divine. The, and, and he says, and it's holy. Because I rest on this day, this day is holy. That is the first time that the word holy is mentioned in Scripture. Mm. And it's the only time it occurs in the book of Genesis. The definition of holy is that seventh day. Um, if you fast forward and you get into the Bible and you see God bringing this people um, out of Egypt and promising them a land, um, he, he gives them all these ways to take care of that land, including sabbatical years and jubilee years. 
and the entire foundation of Judeo-Christian ethics vis-a-vis the environment rest on what's called the sabbatical laws. And so the, the care of creation and the Sabbath were linked by God, not me. <laughs> they, they've been linked uh, since he, he gave land uh, to his people. And um, this Sabbath is, uh, is something that I found that as I talked about creation care, particularly the people who were in the upper echelons of Christianity as far as education goes, folks that were teaching in seminaries, they had no understanding of a Sabbath. And Sabbath isn't something you do academically. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Sabbath is like, uh, is like dental hygiene, if you will. <laughs> you can talk about it all you want, but if you don't brush your teeth and floss, you stink. And so it, it, Sabbath is something you can talk about all you want, but if you don't do it, you have no idea what you're talking about. And so to me, uh, teaching on both of those, it just goes hand in hand. Mm. So when you begin to really look into Sabbath, to embrace what Sabbath is in your own life and rhythms, what does Sabbath speak towards or about the nature of God? This is a great question. Uh, First of all, I think that rest doesn't happen without God. Uh, there's something about the nature of God that he's not rushed and he's not hurried. We're we're told he's the ancient of days. And whether you are a new earth person and you think the earth is 6,000 years old or you think it's four and a half million years old or you think the universe is 12, wherever you go back and put your your marker, God is coming out of infinity to meet you. And, And there's something about that infinite long view uh, which is godly, whereas we take a very short-term view. It takes about one meal missed to get the complete attention of of someone, and yet there's this eternal view which God takes and asks us to participate in uh, during the Sabbath. I, I really, I just had to tell you that if, uh, I, and I know that most of your listeners do not keep a Sabbath. It's it's mm. uncommon today to keep it. And so I'm going to talk about it, and it's going to be academic in a way. But I can tell you that experiencing it is stepping into a whole different dimension of time. And that's very hard. It's, it's, it's like us having a conversation about ice cream. Let's pick a really <laughs> good kind of ice cream. Let's. Let's pick Ben and Jerry's. You, you pick Americone or Cherry Garcia. Which one? We'll take Cherry Garcia. Perfect. Perfect. And, and we could talk about Cherry Garcia all you want and those little rectangular pieces of chocolate in there and the, and the cherries. Woohoo. You know, and it just, um, but one bite is worth a thousand words. Hmm. And, and Sabbath is like that. I can talk about it forever but that does not replace somebody experiencing it. So when we begin to look across the landscape of Christianity and of that fact of if you look across the landscape of Judaism, why do you think it is that we have lost this deep, impactful tradition of 
walking out the Sabbath? I mean, is this a cultural thing? Why do you think that we have, for the most part, lost it? It's disappeared uh, by and large. And first of all, I want to establish that the norm for Christianity has been keeping Sabbath. Hmm. Whether somebody keeps it starting on the on a kind of biblical Sabbath or whether it's the Lord's Day, which also is directly from Scripture, uh, it, it has been a norm of Christian behavior for 2,000 years. You can't go to uh, one of the, the the founding fathers of the church, whether it's Augustine or, or or, or, or the founding fathers of Protestantism. You can't, John Calvin kept it. John Wesley's mother said that their kids knew Sabbath before they could walk or talk. Um, it was ingrained in them. Luther, same thing. And uh, D.L. Moody, uh, an American hero, said, you lose the Sabbath, you lose the church. You'll lose the country and the family eventually. And so it's been foundational to the understanding of Christ and the practice of Christianity. Having said that, we are immersed in a culture. We are not islands. Um, we were told to go out in the world and be lights. Um, and uh, that means we have to go into the world. And the world right now is speeding up. The uh, and I think that the best way to think about why is this happening <clears throat> is to think about what happens on Sunday. When you were a kid growing up, uh, did you did you have a Sunday that was different than the other days of the week? Oh, I absolutely did. Uh, and uh, let me guess, you went to church that day. I did, yes. Yeah, and you uh, and then you came home from church, and let me guess, the family ate dinner that day. You got together, uh, take a nap. Well, yeah. Depending on how old I was, yeah. <laughs> Depending on how old you were. I bet you when you were young, you were told to take it out. Um, and and you did all these things. And if, and if you look at the Sabbath commandment, it's the fourth commandment. It's the longest commandment in Scripture. And on the front of the Sabbath commandment, the first three commandments are, I'm the Lord your God. Uh, don't make idols. Don't take my name in vain. And be And those are commandments about God. If you look behind the Sabbath commandment at commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, that is honor your parents, don't kill, lie, cheat, steal, run around, put out stuff on your credit card to keep up with your neighbor, <laughs> that type of thing. Um, so there's a set of commandments about God and there's a set of commandments about humans there. And it's bridged with the Sabbath. Uh, when we walk out onto that bridge, we meet God. Heaven meets earth. Um, man meets God. Um, the timeless meets the time needy, if you will. And if we take that Sabbath away, the bridge goes. Hmm. But it's more than that. When you remember what you did on Sabbath, it's go to church, you sang, you prayed, etc. You kept the first three commandments. You went home, you had dinner, honor your parents. Um, physically impossible to kill somebody while you're taking a nap. You probably had to take a nap. Um, thou shall not commit adultery. I'm guessing that when you were a kid, once you went to your pet parents' bedroom door and it was locked. Sure, maybe, yeah. Ew, but yeah. They were not committing adultery. Um, and so you, by keeping the Sabbath, all these other commandments begin to fall into place 
or be easier? And the question we have to have to ask as Christians today is who wants to take the Sabbath away from us? Who has a vested interest in breaking that bridge between heaven and earth? Who Who is against families uh, eating together, naps, people going to church, praying, etc.? I believe that we are wrestling with a far bigger issue than whether or not we um, we go out and play uh, travel soccer on that day. Mm. Um, there is no saying, work like the Messiah. Mm. Somebody wants to keep us busy. As a matter of fact, there's only one person I can think of in Scripture that introduces themselves to God as busy. They are late for a meeting. Uh, and God says, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been going to and fro, up and down. I am busy. Mm. Okay. Mm. I cannot get to the meeting on time. And um, and God wants to, us to conform to his image, which is uh, someone with a, with a horizon of eternity in our minds. And Satan wants us to conform to his image, which is busy. Mm. Um, concerned with little things. Um, and, and so I think um, what is what is happening is that the church is under attack, if you will. The bridge is being blown or bombed or whatever. Mm. And uh, so I, I think it, there's more at stake than just how you arrange your calendar. Well, that was our part one of our interview with Dr. Matthew Sleeth about the rhythms of Sabbath rest Next time, we'll get more into what it looks like to truly embrace creation care as, as an ethic, as a way of life that should be the heartbeat of somebody that claims to follow after the teachings of Jesus. I believe, overall, <laughs> that Jesus would love the EPA. He would love the fact that we have the ability to be able to begin to save our world, to save our environment. And if we continue to ignore that, if we continue down this toxic path of a fascist president, rampant consumerism, rampant materialism, that we're on the road towards our own ends. And you don't even have to get on the track of those left-behind, apocalyptic-loving Christians to simply see that creation is deeply in God's heart, and it should be deeply part of our heart as well. Well, as we get to the end of this broadcast, just a reminder that you can catch us on podcast at www.snarkyfaith.com. Thank you so much for joining us this hour. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to dig in deeper to what we're doing, hop on our website, snarkyfaith.com. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. If you're feeling oh so gracious, go over to iTunes as well and give us a good review. But thank you so much. That's all I've got this week, and we will catch you again next week. I'm out of here. WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Aqueduct Conference Center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings, special events, conferences, retreats, and weddings. 
For more information, go to www.aqueductcc.com. We are also sponsored by Lumen. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com. Thank you.